This is Megan Moya Finn, and I'm reading from a piece called Home Elegy. My father built our house himself on the top of a hill, breaking ground, pouring a foundation, and constructing that big white colonial, adorned with a bright red front door, was a cosmological act. My parents were the gods. They organized the chaos of the untamed 20-acre lot. The land had many features and signatures. There were specific trees, certain bends in the path through the woods that I saw as markers. They constitute my own self-referential map of the territory. There was a mound of dirt where no grass grew that we called the sand pit. I buried a cookie tin in a corner of the field where only I knew to look, put a stone over it, and hid my special things in there, my diary and coins. There was a specific quality to the slope of the hill leading up to the house, another to the steep dirt path going to the barn, and I still have images and resonances of these. The vegetable garden and a flower garden where all us kids were put to work. But how much of these scenes are my own imaginings of this place, this land? It is for me a mythic home, remembered almost like a dream in spite of the fact that I lived so many years there. I don't have ancestry on that property. The historical line is one short generation. It's close in and immediate, but nevertheless representative of a personal cosmos, a location on earth where everything happened, the manifestation of a vision and its dissolution. Gaston Bachelard writes about the house as our first world, the site of a great integration of thought, memories, and dreaming. The house where we are born, he says, is the environment where the protective beings live. Our house holds childhood motionless in its arms. To think that another family has moved in made me wonder what has happened to our presences there. I hadn't been back in 15 years. My parents split. The farm was lost, the animals given away. This spring, I decided to mail a note to my old address, asking if I might be able to come one day and walk the property. The word nostalgia comes from two Greek roots, nostos, return home, and algos, longing. Svetlana Boim defines it as longing for a home that no longer exists or that never existed, a romance with one's own fantasy. I wanted to know what it would feel like to be back by that stone wall up on the high field. Maybe the one and only apple tree in the forest is still there. I wanted to see what they did with my mother's gardens full of zinnias, cosmos, and black-eyed Susans, and all those round rocks we had hauled to raise their beds. After she died, I wanted to sit with the body. It's what people do. I wanted to be at home in the world, to experience a complete consonance between my own body and the body of the earth, and to explore what geographer Yi Fu Tuan said. The first environment an infant explores is his parent. If place is defined as a focus of value, of nurture and support, then the mother is the child's primary place. At the base of the quarter mile long driveway, I noticed the mailbox at Meadowdale Road had been hit by a snowplow. This delighted me. It always used to happen when this was our mailbox too. The country plow seemed to be exceptionally reckless along these back roads. The edges of the black plastic were broken into sharp shards, but I saw two white envelopes inside. I wondered if one was the letter I'd sent. Months had passed since I'd mailed it, and I had received no reply. 
Feeling uneasy, I drove up the shale path of the driveway to the top of the hill in my little black car and remembered having to make the long pilgrimage up and down to and from the school bus every day, an epic journey for my kid's self. The crushed shale limestone had lots of fossils in it, trilobites and ancient seashells. If you looked closely, you could always find a few of them. My sisters and brother and I would kick the rocks along the ground on the long uphill walk at the end of the day. We used to fantasize that our mom would be waiting at the top, eager and holding a plate of chocolate chip cookies, but this did not happen. Life could be a dream, I heard her cackle sarcastically inside my head. It was one of her favorite phrases. There was the sand pit to the right of the drive, now astonishingly covered with perfectly green uniform grass, golf course perfect grass, the type of grass I'd never seen on this land. The mound looked flatter than I had remembered. I pulled my car up to the house at the driveway's end, our house still there, standing tall with its white vinyl siding. A new porch had been affixed to the front, and now the door was brown instead of red. A weather vane my mom had my father install on the side of the chimney remained, still spinning in the breeze. There was an enormous diesel pickup truck parked beside the open garage door with a business emblem on its side, CJ Contractors, a telephone number, and the white outline image of a backhoe. Inside the garage, I could see a muddy ATV four-wheeler and a dirt bike. There were tools and chains, concrete blocks lying around haphazardly in my garage. Having made it back there, I felt the warm and fuzzy feelings. In spite of my urge to flee, I worked up the courage to get out of the car, walk up and knock on the front door. There was no response. Evidently, nobody was home. I peered in through a window and could see into the front hall. I had a glimmer of my dad hand sanding that wooden banister, leading up the stairs to the second floor where the bedrooms are. I saw empty bookshelves, a used up bottle of laundry detergent lying cap off on its side in the middle of the room. There were cardboard boxes here and there. Perhaps they'd just moved in. Stretching to see into the living room, I noticed a gigantic taxidermied moose head mounted on the wall. A little wind chime was hanging tackily off of one of his antlers. Recently, I was leafing through a New Age self-help book. In it was a meditative visualization exercise prescribed for anxiety and stress reduction. The exercise was called You're a Shy Animal. Imagine you're taking a walk in the beautiful countryside and notice a small, shy animal peeking out the edge of a wooded forest. Envision a creature with a loving energy. Think of its essence, gentle, sweet, and full of peace. Animals are very sensitive to our mental and emotional states, so ask yourself this question. What qualities might you embody in order to get the shy animal to approach you? Feel these sensations within yourself and imagine the animal coming closer. That's right. Just stay with it for a little bit. This feeling is yours. Allow your intention to come to your own belly, as if you were arriving on the animal, sunning itself on a tree stump in the forest. Feel your belly rise and expand on the in-breath and fall and recede when you breathe out. I closed the book and recalled the time when I was eight or nine years old and a little white-tailed deer and I encountered one another on the hillside at Meadowdale. She was a fawn and I was a child. Neither scared the other one away. 
What qualities might I have been embodying in order to get the shy animal to approach me? The Irish theologian John O'Donohue noted that when we approach things with great reverence, great things decide to approach us. But as far as I remember, there was no strategy or intentionality in crossing paths with the deer. What I remember is feeling so much a part of the hill, so blended into the environment that I was sure she couldn't see me. She was just wandering and seemed about as interested in me as a bee. I was as unthreatening as any other creature her size or smaller living there. She nibbled the grass. I scooched nearer. We got so close, I almost touched her wet black nose, and then she looked at me. It was a long, enduring moment, a silent moment between kid animals. But then a voice yelled down from the driveway. The spell was broken, and we both bounded off to our mother's. I suddenly felt especially creepy staring through a window into someone else's home and turned around to leave at once. On the porch, I brushed past a wooden chair with broken rungs and a coffee can filled to the brim with cigarette butts. I looked down the east side of the property where the barn my father built was still standing. It had been expanded with an addition, a higher ceilinged space that loomed behind the original structure and housed several yellow bobcats and bulldozers presumably for a CJ contractor's needs. The old sliding panel door my dad crafted and installed still hung on its track. Where the chicken coop once was, there was now a chain-link fenced-in area, looking like a place to keep a mean dog. Instead of the original brick red, the barn had been repainted the pale beige color of a Band-Aid. One day, my dog Petra, a German shepherd, came rollicking up to greet me in the meadow with a poor, wild baby rabbit in her mouth. When I saw what she had, I took it out from her jaws, held it in my hands. The bunny kicked her tiny hind legs a few frantic times, then fell lifeless. I howled in disbelief and scolded Petra. I flung myself inside the house. Sorry that you had to see that, my mom said, gathering me. She explained it was her nature. I went back out and buried the rabbit at the edge of the yard facing the Heldeberg Hills. I refused to pet the dog for weeks to come, even though I knew it wasn't her fault. It was a lot of years later when we'd lost the land. My parents had split and my siblings and I, plus the big farm dogs, were living with my mother in a ranch-level house in the suburbs. One night, she threw open the door to my bedroom. I was 15 and it was the evening before Easter Sunday. My mother was sobbing, inconsolable, and I could smell the wine. She crouched on the ground in a squat and covered her head. What happened, Mom? What happened? I bought your sister Mary a bunny, a baby bunny for Easter, she wailed. I thought it would be safe until tomorrow if I kept it in the basement. But Petra got it. She found it and she killed it. It died. It died. She wept on the floor of my room. I touched her hair and cried too. To the north was the upper meadow and the pond. There was no fence around the pond anymore and it looked fuller than I ever remembered it. The reeds and cattails stood tall and lush. When we were kids, we had set a goldfish free in the water. We'd squeal whenever we saw her occasionally swim near the surface, having grown into a full-sized koi. I wonder how she got along with the community of trout we'd already stocked the water with. I thought she might still be there even though I knew that was absurd. 
One day we'd built a tiny raft with a sail and floated a garter snake across. I'd spent hours circling that pond in a little rowboat, but now I wondered how that could be possible. Had its borders shrunk? Maybe the reeds were taking up space. How can it be? Was I really so small? I wondered with the fuzziness of dream recall if the rowboat was even real. The new inhabitants of the land had placed some decorative wooden lighthouses around the pond area. A few of them were cracked and lying on their side. They looked as if they'd been taken from a mini golf course in a seaside tourist trap. The paint on them was stripped and weathered. I marveled at the lighthouses and the strangers who had come to this place and made it their own. Sometimes we'd go camping right at home, pitch a tent and make a bonfire in a spot down by the horse corral. We'd roast marshmallows and sleep in our sleeping bags, look up at the stars. Later, I would learn about the way stars are, many of them burnt out, long extinguished, but still visible from the earth. We are cosmically estranged and there are light years between us. Nostalgic love, wrote Svetlana Boim, can only survive in a long distance relationship. It takes us ages to catch up. Nostalgia is a rebellion against the modern idea of time. Bird in the house means someone's going to die. A red cardinal had flown into my mother's bedroom on the day before she passed away. There was a sliding glass door beside her bed opening onto the backyard of her house in suburbia. The little bird had pecked its beak and flown, thrown its feathered body against the pane of glass, commanding attention. When the door was left slid open, the cardinal bombed its way inside and looped around the bedroom frantically before sailing back into the yard and away toward its tree. The man my mom had remarried was a suit salesman. When we met him for the first time at the funeral mass, he told my siblings and I the story about the bird. He said it was more than an old wives' tale. Susan had psychic powers, blue-black eyes. He said she was an Irish witch, that her premonitions were faded and rattled on with other alcoholic delusions. What did we make of it? The farm girl and me had to agree. Strange behavior on the part of animals is credible cause for concern. Per the orders of the suit salesman, the body was given a hasty cremation without a viewing. Where there is sorrow, there is holy ground, wrote Oscar Wilde. When she died, it brought me to the edge of the frontier, the limit of my known inner space, and then right off the cliff. The poet David White describes the physical experience of loss as falling towards something. It's like falling in love, except it's falling into grief. After she was gone, I was struck by peculiar intuitive hits reminding me that I came out from inside of her, that the very material of my cellular body was knit and woven in her darkness. I was born from her, then laid on top. It wasn't something that I knew with my mind, but a memory that was suddenly unprecedentedly alive in my consciousness. It wasn't a thought, but more like a homing instinct, radiant in my bones. It followed me around for several weeks, trying to reconcile discordant elements. My mother's body is a mythic terrain, a place whose flesh I had not seen for years. I like to think of how alive and well it was, 
and of her beauty. Her skin smelled like bubble baths and cooking garlic and pinot. When she was young, she had long, sleek, 70s, super babe hair, the color of honey. Later in life, she would bleach it blonde and sport choppy, uneven bangs. Divine, she stood in a fuchsia belted dress in our farm kitchen, looking tired out the picture window, all around her hungry kids and beasts. She held the crescent moon of the white phone to her ear, swatting us away. She fished black flies out from where they'd drown inside her wine glass. She bent over in the thriving garden and put cut flowers on a big old wire spool turned into a tabletop. Stirring dinner with one hand, she would stroke her forehead with the other, yelling for somebody to go collect the eggs. Her legs were the strongest part of her, laced with veins. Her belly was a universe, a wrinkled world vortex of stretches from four consecutive pregnancies. The past isn't dead. It isn't even past. Still, 15 years had gone by, and my mother's flower garden on the side of the house was erased now, as if it had never existed. That nearly fluorescent green grass blanketed the ground like thick makeup. The propane tank stood starkly exposed and looked like a silver blimp that had made an emergency landing right in the middle of the yard. In our time, we'd concealed it with a white wooden fence on which we kids painted murals of the pets, of flowers and bees. I ventured around the west side of the house facing the Helderberg Hills and could see that the rinky-dink above-ground swimming pool where I'd splashed summers away had been replaced by an in-ground model surrounded by cheap patio furniture. I wanted to walk more, to see the view of the mountains from the kitchen, to go and find my cookie tin of treasures up there in the pasture. But I was out of place, wary with the sense that I was uninvited and that my presence here might not be welcome. I wondered if the current owners might bust out from hiding with a shotgun or an angry pit bull and chase me away with hoots and hollers. I imagined them reading my letter months ago, unimpressed. I pictured them scoffing, laughing, and throwing the thing into the trash. As I turned to get back into my car, I paused to look at the mouth of the woods, the path my father had cut there with an old-fashioned big-wheel tractor. Deep in that forest, I knew I could trace the loops of the trails. I could follow the property all the way back to the wetlands, underneath the power lines. I knew where the orange markers were nailed to the trees and the posted signs hung, warning hunters to stay off our land. I was only steps away from the thicket in the center, where I used to imagine I'd someday build a tiny cabin just for me, and right beside it, a little one-stall stable for my pony, Trinket. I once heard, whatever isn't healed in life is cured by sacred death. It tumbled like a stone inside my mind, banging up against what I could know, striving to become smooth. Imagination polished it, into a holy thought, a bead of prayer. All around, the body of the land looked aged, softer. Its features seemed to have fallen and sunken over the years. The hills looked less steeply sloped. The paddock where the horses had been was unfenced now, making the barn appear strangely alone and unattached. I felt older, too, and very tired, changed from round and young to bony and thirty. Still, the girl and me who ran this land was present. 
I turned and scanned the edge of the forest for that solo apple tree I used to love. It struck me then with a bolt that my personal story was of quite little concern to the rest of creation. Here, the old trees were dead, the new trees growing in, the pond closing in on itself, green grass covering everything. The chickens we had raised from fluffy yellow chicks to egg-laying hens had vanished, and the deer I nearly touched a long time ago was long gone too. I had my pony's leather saddle and a storage unit in the city now. My mother was gone, drank to sacred death. The terrible thing we knew would happen resolved by its happening. But I wasn't in a mournful mood. I was smiling, a private joke made between me and the land. The Heldeberg escarpment smirked at me from afar, Mother Nature in the rock face. The pond water winked. The busted lighthouses littered the lawn. I was on pilgrimage to my own motherland, devoutly bewildered, trying to map a mystery, searching for an actual ground of being where I might stand, even if I was only trespassing for 10 minutes. It satisfied me to say to the listening air at my childhood home, I know now that everything changes. I know that everything ends, as if admitting it could call a truce.